As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's wonderful guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a plethora of free ebooks. But now for today's show. I am joined by the brilliant Dr. Lydia McGrew, a widely published analytic philosopher and author. She defends the reliability of the Gospels and acts in several books, most recently in her fantastic new book, Testimonies to the Truth, Why You Can Trust the Gospels. Lydia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Ruth. Now, Lydia, before we sort of dive into more about your life and your work, would you just share a little bit about why you're doing this interview in a kind of reclined position? Right. So I I tend to do my interviews this way now. Um, as of two years ago, I abruptly developed a, a severe chronic pain condition that affects my lower back and tailbone. And I can I can walk. I can still walk, stand and lie. But uh, sitting normally is a, is a real challenge. So um, God has been good. It's been a very tough time and looks like it's going to continue indefinitely. Um, so that's been a, a, a challenge to my faith. But um, it's been worthwhile in a sense. And I'm just glad that I can continue to do interviews like this one uh, through the uh, flexibility of hosts like yourself who are fine with this posture. Well, Lydia, I so appreciate you doing that. Thank you so much. And I'm so sorry to hear about that. We're going to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, how you sort of experience God in the midst of all the struggle as as we speak later on. But I do really appreciate that. And and as I said, um, you know, if you need to stop at any point, just just let me know. That's not a problem. But really, thank you. Really appreciate you doing that. So so let's go back, if you wouldn't mind, right to kind of the beginning of your life. I mean, what was your experience of God growing up, Lydia? Did you grow up in a kind of faith household? Yes, I, I was raised in a Christian household. I was I was raised Baptist, um, and I made a profession of faith in Jesus when I was just four, actually, four wow. years old, but I can remember it pretty vividly. Um, and then, in a sense, God's working in my life to make me what, you know, gradually more and more he wants me to be, paralleled the process of growing up. And yet, at the same time, I could definitely see that, you know, God was working in and through that all that time, even though it, it kind of took the form of just becoming, you know, 
less childish sometimes. And was there something in particular that happened when you were four? Do you remember why it was that you kind of made that commitment for yourself? Or was it kind of just gradually taking on your parents' faith fit for yourself, do you think? Well, in that Baptist background, you know, it was definitely emphasized that you needed to make a very conscious commitment. It was never like, you know, you just are a Christian because we're Christians. It was definitely, it had to be personal. And so I believe that, you know, when you're four, you you believe your parents, which I think is justified because that's the that's the evidence that you have. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, I better do this. You know, I, I, I want to commit my life to Christ. And so um, I did it when I was alone, though, at night and then told my folks the next day. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't just gradual. And in fact, after that, I really I really nagged my pastor to baptize me because, you know, Jesus said we're supposed to be baptized. But, um, you know, Baptists are definite that you want to baptize only upon a true commitment. So I had to kind of convince him, even though I was so young. And were there any significant moments throughout the rest of your life where your faith grew in a particular way or sort of took on a new meaning or perhaps it became more academic, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it definitely became more academic, um, particularly after I met my husband, Tim, um, in Pennsylvania, where I went to college. You know, he was very strongly committed to an evidential approach to Christianity, where, you know, you don't just presuppose it's truth. You you need to have reasons and evidence. And okay, you know, I eventually came around to that point of view. Um, but then, you know, things get tough. And I was like, well, you know, is this true or not? And I did have a bit of a crisis of faith early in our marriage. But, um, you know, Tim was helping to show me the evidence for Christianity. So that was one big moment and move forward in those early years of our marriage. And then later, when we were writing together in philosophy, we were co-writing, we were uh, actually tapped to write the article on the resurrection of Jesus, uh, which came out in 2009 in the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. And that was a time when we began even delving further into the evidence for the reliability of the Gospels, both in that time and after that time, which is what brought me to eventually be writing in, in New Testament, while at the same time I've been publishing, both co-publishing with him and on my own in probability theory and epistemology. Well, we're going to be hearing much more about some of your philosophical work over the next few episodes. But um, just going back to the beginning of your life again, you were adopted as a baby, weren't you? That's true. That is correct. I And a baby baby. I was seven months. So, you know, I wouldn't have even known if they hadn't told me, but I was always told. And I think that worked well. And has that has that um, sort of experience of being adopted, has that shaped in any way the, the way that you think about God? I guess particularly, um, you know, the, the biblical truth that we are adopted as children of God. Has that sort of shaped the way you think about God at all? It was definitely emphasized in my home um, that they had seen me, they had wanted me, um, and I think it's shaped my ideas even more after I was an adult and got more information about. Um, so I actually got in touch with my my birth mother when I was 31 and realized various contingencies where, you know, I almost wasn't born. I almost wasn't placed for adoption. You know, th these things that could have gone differently. 
and really realized how providentially, even though I was just a baby and obviously had no control over it, God was um, working and guiding my life. The other thing is that um, when I was a newborn, my my face was asymmetrical, and it doesn't show as much now, but um, the medical knowledge wasn't as good at the time, and uh, there was a concern that I might have Down syndrome, and they actually attempted to dissuade my adoptive parents from adopting me. Uh, they didn't like to place always disabled children for adoption. It was just a very different world there in the 1960s, but they said, no, we, we want her. And so then they adopted me, and then it turned out that, of course, I, I was you know mentally fine. Um, so that was a real, I think, image of what God has done, how he does not reject us for any uh, disability, but loves us no matter what unconditionally. Now, Nadia, you were a missions major at Bible College, and then your PhD is obviously in English literature. So how did you end up as a philosopher? Because that, I would imagine, is not the obvious route into philosophy, is it? It's, it's a really, it's a good question. You know, Tim and I took our doctorates at the same time, he in philosophy, I in English. But um, I just turned out to be much more interested in philosophy. <laughs> I mean, you know, the the bottom line, and I, I had one uh, article published in English, and the editor published it sort of reluctantly, and in his acceptance letter made some sort of snide remark about the fact that I had used the phrase cadence of evidence in my English literature article. And that was like a moment of revelation to me. He was considered quite a, a, a rigorous scholar. He was definitely not a postmodernist or anything. And yet he was sneering at the phrase canons of evidence. And I thought, this is not my field. <laughs> I, I want to go into a more intrinsically rigorous field where nobody's going to sneer at the phrase canons of evidence. And then because Tim and I were working so much together, um, I was able to contribute substantially. I mean, when we co-wrote articles... I wasn't just, you know, polishing the writing. I was definitely contributing to the ideas. We were doing that together. So I just became so interested in that. And then in philosophy, as in many other fields, when you submit articles, it's supposed to be blind reviewed. So fortunately, my status as being uh, not having the degree in philosophy could not be used against me. It, you just went through this rigorous process of blind review. And if the article stood up to that process, uh, it would be published. And um, that was how I ended up basically earning my place in philosophy by way of a, uh, a a list of publications, a publication record. And as you mentioned there, your husband, Timothy McGrew, is a philosophy professor. I mean, you must have some pretty interesting conversations at home, right? <laughs> pretty much all, all the time. You know, <laughs> um, we'll, we'll bring things up and um, you know, especially when I'm when I'm feeling, you know, more alert, which isn't all the time nowadays, I'll say, oh, I've been thinking about this or, you know, and it, we were just on a vacation briefly last week, about an hour away. And that just gives us more time to kind of have those those conversations whenever the ideas occur to us because we're together, uh, which we aren't, you know, always when we're not on vacation. Now, sometimes in various fields of academia, there's suspicion towards Christians working in that field. I, I guess the obvious example is science, where people would say that, you know, you can't be a Christian and do science. Is, is the same true of philosophers generally? Have you or Tim encountered any difficulties because of your Christian faith? I think philosophy is generally less hostile than science. Um, 
if you are in a department, which I'm not, a lot depends on what department you're in and to what extent that is, you know, respected. You know, does your respect depend on how good you are? It also depends on what aspect you go into. I would say one of the biggest uh, suspicions would be just of someone who does philosophy of religion. And so in that sense, I think it's worked out well that Tim was established as an epistemologist before he began working in the philosophy of religion. And then, of course, that I'm not in a department at all, so I don't have to care what anybody thinks, you know. (laughs) Basically, I'm very lucky, actually, that he is the the breadwinner. Um, So, yes, there is hostility. There's hostility to the philosophy of religion. Um, And I would, you know, maybe cannily counsel someone who's going into philosophy, you know, pick pick a subfield where you can work um, and become respected that doesn't absolutely depend upon your Christian faith, but that is not in conflict with it either. And do you think that being a woman in the field of philosophy has caused you any setbacks at all in a way that perhaps some of your male colleagues or counterparts haven't experienced? I don't think so. Um, I haven't had as many opportunities to see whether that might happen because I haven't had to apply for a job, you know. Um I would say on social media, perhaps, I've encountered a certain amount of of what I would regard as sexism. Um, But those were not philosophers. One, the worst, most egregious example was a a theologian. So, you know, you could take that, um, you know, as what you like. But he he implied that uh, maybe my husband had really written the articles that are published under my name. (laughs) That's probably the most egregiously sexist remark I've ever run into. But in general, I don't think it's been a problem at all. It's It's been a very fair field as far as that's concerned. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Now, how did you get into apologetics? Because again, that's not necessarily the obvious route, um, but but there are a lot of philosophers who do apologetics. But what was what was your your route in, Lydia? Well, right from that very early time when Tim and I were very young, um, he was just intensely interested in apologetics. He was very much influenced by J- uh, John Warwick Montgomery, who is a, a, an apologist, an evidentialist apologist. So we always had that at the background. But I think we really got into it when a friend challenged us to respond to a a portion of Alvin Plantinga's book, Warranted Christian Belief, where Dr. Plantinga is kind of negative about the historical evidential case for Jesus' resurrection. And our friend said, you two are the ones who need to respond to this because he's doing probability and, you know, nobody else is going to really know what to say. So we worked on something together on that. And then uh, Tim actually presented that paper at a conference. And then uh, we wrote together on that topic. And that brought us to the attention of uh, William Lane Craig. Uh, and then he and J.P. Moreland asked us to write that um, article on the resurrection of Jesus. So that was kind of our road into apologetics. And then the next step was that Tim got a, a grant from the Templeton Foundation to investigate the history of apologetics going all the way back to the 1600s. And so then he was bringing some of those old arguments to me, like undesigned coincidences that we'll talk about on another show. Yeah. And that really, um, I was fascinated. We were both fascinated. And that was when I began really researching and writing in New Testament studies. 
And is there a particular area of apologetics that is that is most exciting to you, would you say? I'm not as excited about, you know, a priori arguments for the existence of God, though I'm familiar with them. I'm really most excited about the historical argument, the historical evidence of, of God's acting. And one way I like to put it is that, you know, when I got to know my husband, it wasn't by having a priori arguments that a person named Tim McGrew existed. It was because, you know, he opened the door of my practice room where I was practicing the piano and stuck his head in and complimented me on my playing. So in the same way, we know God most clearly and most vividly through the things he has done in history. And so that to me is the most exciting area. And so I suppose that for you would be the most compelling apologetic argument. I mean, is is there anything in particular that would convince you if you were a skeptic? Is there kind of one thing that you could pull out that you think would convince you? Or, or is it kind of a plethora cumulative argument, do you think, for you? Well, skeptics come in many, many shapes and sizes and are influenced by different things. I think there probably are skeptics who would be more influenced by things like the, the Kalam cosmological argument or something like that. Um, and who would have their skepticism sort of cracked open psychologically. So we need to make a distinction between what's psychologically most uh, important to someone and uh, the epistemological strength of something. Um, maybe, maybe a skeptic does need to hear first some of those arguments that challenge his naturalism. Uh, but maybe another skeptic is going to be really impressed more by the historical argument. So we need to be careful not to treat those as epistemological matters if they're more rhetorical matters. I think we need to keep those separate, but then try to be alive to where a particular audience is coming from. What do you think is the one apologetic question, or, or perhaps it's many, that you feel like you have personally struggled with the most? The problem of evil. <laughs> Un unequivocally, the problem of evil. Um, and from a variety of aspects. So, for example, one is, why does God allow uh, children to be influenced for evil? Why does God allow sex trafficking? Why does God allow um, little children to come upon pornography on the internet and have their, their minds damaged when they're still so young? You know, and there are just evil people out there who do evil things to the innocent that could actually keep them from knowing God all their lives because they've been damaged when they're so young. That that has really been a vivid struggle for me. And then also just in the the pain that I've uh ah. had in the last two years, you know, God, I'm trying to I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to help you. Why are you allowing this? Because it it feels like a hindrance. So I would say unequivocally the problem of evil. And I do think there is an evidential problem of evil. I don't think it's something that we can just say this has no force at all. And so I'm just really grateful that I believe the evidence is so strong that it can, you can, you know, you can have evidence in both directions. It's a probabilistic matter. And that, thank God, he's not left himself without witness. So the positive evidence can uh, overwhelm and overpower that. So do you think that's the way you reconcile that difficult question by looking at the positive evidence? Or is there kind of more of a personal um, answer to the problem of pain and suffering as well do you think that you've experienced in your own life 
Well, there, you know, there definitely are other answers that I think are relevant, like free will, the fall. I believe there was a historical fall. Um, the need for a backdrop of uh, natural law against which miracles can stand out. So if, you know, if God was just causing all the bullets that somebody shoots to go off in some other direction all the time, preventing all evil, then we wouldn't have that that value of a natural order. So there are all kinds of arguments um, and responses, and I think these are all relevant. Um, but ultimately, I think there is going to be some residual negative point to the problem of evil. And at that point, I would emphasize that um, positive evidence. And I would also emphasize the fact that whatever evil does in the world, uh, God has not held himself aloof from it. He has come among us and he has suffered as man. And so the cross is ultimately, the cross followed by the empty tomb is ultimately the strongest answer to the problem of evil. And I suppose with a lot of these questions for you, it's the problem of evil. I would imagine that's the case for a lot of people listening as well. With lots of these things, do you think there's a sense in which we need to perhaps just accept that there are some things that we don't know and that's okay? I do. I think that's true. Um, I, I veer away from an apologetic that makes what I would consider to be too much use of that. Like it's all just a complete mystery and we have no idea. Right. Um, I do think that scripture gives us some idea. So, for example, it will say the suffering of the, this life is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. Like it'll be worth it all in the end. Or God uses suffering for soul making to make us what he wants us to be. So even though we might not know in every single instance why God allowed this particular thing, we can get a broader sense of, of why in broader terms God allows evil. So we know some things and we don't know other things and that's okay. Lydia, why did you personally believe in God, do you think? Because of the evidence. You know, at this point, I'm really glad to have, and I, I think it's important and I need to have, that publicly available um, evidence and especially the historical evidence. But, you know, all of the evidence that's available to me has been a real, a real life ring that I've been able to cling to. Um, but I'm not ashamed to say that because I believe it stands upon its own, not just as a felt need. And obviously that wasn't something you had access to, nor perhaps the um, the cognitive ability at four, um, okay. which is when you made your commitment. But that's obviously something that has kind of come later, would you say? Yes, yes. I think, you know, as Christians, we have to be continually um, having a relationship with God. And in that sense, renewing our commitment to him day by day in the light of our present circumstances and not becoming um, laissez-faire about that or like, you know, I did that a long time ago. It's all taken care of. It, there's always going to be some new challenge and some new thing where you need to just come to God in weakness and humility and just place yourself in his presence and ask for his help. And so that's what I would challenge all Christians to do. And one of the ways he helps is through the positive evidence he has provided. Lydia, as we finish this episode, if there's anything, um, is there anything that you would want to, I guess, you know, over the years that you've done philosophy and apologetics, all of that, is there anything that you'd want to go back and say, tell your teenage self, um, kind of with the wealth of knowledge that you have accumulated over the years, is there any advice that you would want to give yourself in light of all of that, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. 
You know, like you like to think you're wise. You like to say, oh, I'm 57 years old now. Now I'm wise. You know, let me <laughs> let me give you this advice. But I suppose if there's one thing I would say, it's try to have an integrated mind. Don't have your faith be over here in one box. And you're, if you are any kind of academic or um, interested in intellectual questions, have that over in a different box. We need to have an integrated mind. And God has made it possible to do that. So so strive for that. Strive for that integration. I, I like to quote, I believe it was E.M. Forster who said, always connect the pros and the passion. And that's what we want to be doing all the time is connecting the pros and the passion. It's definitely um, kind of a motto I have and something that I'm trying to live up to in my life. Lydia, thank you so much. We're not finished because we're going to be talking to you for a couple more episodes, but thank you so much. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you, Ruth. It's been fun. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guest through the links with today's show. Please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. And don't forget to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.